This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I practice in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I've been doing that for over 20 years. And I started self-work in order to reach out and extend the walls of my practice to anyone interested in mental health issues or perhaps who experience mental illness of some kind themselves. I also talk some about relationship issues because I've done a great deal of couples work. So I'm glad you're here. Today we're going to be talking about depression I'm going to speak briefly about depression and how you can identify that you have it, but I'm also going to be talking about how it's different from what I call perfectly hidden depression. I've included some responses that have been emailed to me from people who strongly identify with perfectly hidden depression because I think in those people's words, you can really hear what depression is like. We're going to be talking about, is perfectly hidden depression intentional? If you're interested in some of the other episodes that I've talked about, Perfectly Hidden Depression, they are episodes 3, 4, and 21, if you really are interested in the topic. I want to announce that I'll be doing my next podcast on the potential causes of Perfectly Hidden Depression, so you might want to tune in then. And today, we've got an email from a listener whose history has included sexual abuse and actual abuse from a therapist. And we're going to talk about how you can really choose a good therapist. So let's get started. There's a well-known inventory called the Beck Depression Inventory for people who are wondering if they have actual clinical depression, because of course all of us can be sad or perhaps withdrawn at times, but it doesn't qualify as what's termed a clinical depression. The Beck Depression Inventory is well-known, often used to determine if someone meets the criteria. It's self-scored, so you can take it yourself. It's easy to understand. It covers the mental, emotional, and physical aspects of depression, and even quantifies just how depressed you might be, dependent on your answers. In fact, I will include a link to the Beck Depression Inventory in the show notes if you're interested. Sometimes people who are moderately depressed don't realize how slowly the lights have gone down on the joy or satisfaction with their life. They may come into my office and say, you know, I don't really know what's wrong. I just know something is wrong. They can't see how much they're struggling with negativity, irritability, or maybe sadness. They're blind to the many ways they may be isolating from other people or beginning to pull into themselves. I call depression an implosion of the self. You don't have much energy going toward anything or others. But it can happen so slowly, you don't quite realize how hard life has become. If you can kind of imagine being in a room with the lights being turned down almost imperceptibly, you really wouldn't realize how much you're having to squint in order to see. That's kind of what depression can be like. It doesn't always hit you like a ton of bricks. Then it's really shocking one day when you start to imagine your own death or perhaps that if you died, it wouldn't matter. You're looking for ways to escape. Maybe you want to get in your car and drive to a whole other state. Depression at that point has entrenched itself into who you are and how you think. 
Andrew Solomon, who wrote the wonderful book, but it's a difficult book to read. It's huge. The book is called The Noonday Demon, but he writes very simply, the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's vitality. You lose your ability to function responsibly, or you have to make yourself function responsibly. You go to work, but you can't focus. You're constantly berating yourself. You've got lots of negative, what we call self-talk going on. The physical equivalent of it would be like you picking up a hammer and hitting your head with it over and over again. It's going to do some damage. So that's depression. If severe enough, you could lose your desire or ability to function at all. More moderate depression is called dysthymia. And of course, more serious depression, major depressive disorder. Some of the criteria are depressed mood, anhedonia, which simply means not enjoying the things you previously have enjoyed, hopelessness, helplessness, low self-esteem or negative self-talk, irritability and anger can be a part of depression, not sleeping well, not wanting to eat or gaining weight, having really foggy and indecisive thinking, and of course, having thoughts of death. Oh, and I should definitely say, as Andrew Solomon says, a lack of energy. The good news about depression, about classic depression, is that you can get better. You can exercise, you can have therapy, you can seek medication, you can do mindfulness, other kinds of things that raise your ability to be aware of what you're thinking or what you're feeling and the effect it's having on you. So how is perfectly hidden depression different from classic depression? You're depressed, okay, but you don't look classically depressed. One man recently said to me, The Beck Depression Inventory for me is asking the wrong question. I would answer a resounding no to the statement, I often feel hopeless, which is one of the inventory statements. I wouldn't admit feeling hopeless to anyone ever. For someone with perfectly hidden depression, the question should be, if you could admit feeling hopeless, would you? The answer again would be no, but it would reveal perfectly hidden depression. PhD or perfectly hidden depression is a term that I have come up with or created, which describes a syndrome that I've seen in people. And a syndrome is simply a set of characteristics and behaviors that you'll often find together. PhD enables people to hide or detach from emotional pain. It does not mean that the pain isn't there or that it's not having an effect. You simply do not allow yourself to feel. These are people that are doing all things to the best of their ability all the time, every day. They push themselves to the limit. They put others before themselves, often believing that a focus on self is selfish. They live life very deliberately. They get things done, and they accomplish the seemingly impossible. But again, they're ignoring hurt. They're avoiding revealing themselves. They laugh off fatigue. But these are my words. What I thought would be really interesting, or at least I find fascinating, is for you to hear from three people who have written me about their experience of perfectly hidden depression. The first woman is named Casey, and she's in her 30s. I'm almost embarrassed to be depressed. I feel like if I went to a therapist, it would be wasting their time. There are people out there carrying much heavier burdens than I am, certainly. But I'm starting to think I need help. My sadness is sort of a constant thing that I deal with, like a low-grade headache that you can forget about sometimes, and some days I feel great. But then something will happen to tip the balance, and I'm lost. Ever since my dad passed away, it's been so much harder. I want to sleep all the time. I don't want to take care of my house. 
but I do since I don't want anyone to see it messy. I don't want to go out with friends, but I do so they don't think I'm ignoring them. I even feel angry a lot over dumb stuff. I have never, ever been an angry person, but I don't want anyone to know it. I almost can't make myself not be happy around others, if that makes sense. There's that entrenchment I was talking about. But she continues, I feel like I'm wearing a mask when I'm out in public. I work with high school students, and most of them spend a lot of time in my office because I'm really good at letting people talk. I think most of my friends and family like me for just that reason. I'm Casey the listener, Casey the sympathizer, Casey the one who doesn't make fun of you. But they have no idea how there is this constant ache in the pit of my stomach or how tears are right there behind my eyes. I don't think they would even want to hear about my problems. They'd like to talk about themselves, and 99% of the time, I'm okay with that. What I would say to Casey if she was in my office, I would say, Well, you're a really good giver, so you may have attracted really good takers as friends. (laughs) So, of course, they're going to talk away and perhaps not ask you how you are, but in some ways you may have created that scenario. There are people who would want to listen to you. This is from Jordan, a man in his late 40s. It's like a constant undercurrent, invisible to most casual observers. It doesn't seem to characterize me. I'm a smartass, life of the party and all that. But it's still there. And when it comes out from time to time, people around me are shocked. I've achieved far more in life than I expected. I'm 47. I was the first member of my family to graduate from college. There are two failed marriages. Both were results of hidden despair. I mean, the marriages themselves were the byproduct of my despair. I wasn't emotionally close to either wife. I thought I could be successfully married while managing the relationship in some rational way that would let me remain strong, or at least seem strong. And I didn't want to be alone. I wanted the negative to go away. I denied it. I have secrets I've kept from everyone. I've never trusted anyone enough to fully confide in them. I keep myself distracted with adrenaline feeds from triathlon training. It's still there, this thing, always. I find I need to constantly shift my focus away from death. I'm fixated on it as a target. I don't plan to hasten its arrival, but I'm not doing much to keep it away either. And in my darkest moments, I realize that I'm not that special. I believe there are millions more just like me. Now again, if I had Jordan to talk with, I would tell him, that he needs to be careful with those thoughts because they can grow and become more potent, the thoughts of death. But I thought especially his statements of keeping his relationship rational was so interesting that if he could keep everything in his head, that he could be safe, but there was still despair there. Of course, we connect through thoughts and thinking, but we also deeply connect with each other with emotions. And if there are none there, it's really hard to feel engaged. So here's a third letter. So you know a little of my past. I'm the daughter of a drug addict. This is from, I'm sorry, this is from Robin, who is a student. My mother did pills all of my childhood, and it was what many would say very traumatizing. I still have a problem believing this, because I've always seen this as normal, and would tell myself things were not all that bad, and I was just being sensitive, and went on with my life. I always worked very hard in school to have straight A's. I also have a habit of caring for others and trying to make sure they accept me and think I'm great. As irrational as it is, anything less than perfection makes me hate myself. 
Yes, I'm the student who got a 104 on a biology exam and was upset that I missed one bonus question. I would cry in my bathtub over getting a B on a math exam and even hit myself when I got a low B on a statistics exam. If I'm not excelling in school, I feel worthless, pointless, and frustrated. I can honestly say at this point in my life, I don't love myself. I love only the part of me that is capable of achieving great success, the part of me that is responsible and can take care of others, the part of me that is put together. Boy, I can really relate with this one from Robin. I remember telling a therapist that I had panic disorder, and I hated it. I wanted it gone. I don't think I was quite as perfectionistic as Robin, but I didn't like that there was something so evidently wrong with me. And I've got some episodes on that. It's episode two and I believe 25, if you'd like to listen about that. But back to perfectly hidden depression. One of the points I want to make is these three people seem to recognize what they were doing. They intentionally were hiding. In recent months, there have been more articles on what's called smiling depression or high-functioning depression that really is the same as perfectly hidden depression, or at least it's one subtype of perfectly hidden depression. One of the things, however, that's important to know is that there's some people walking around who do not realize what they're doing, or they gradually realize what they're doing. It has become so normal for them to not feel pain, to not admit pain, to discount pain, that they simply do not believe it's there. But after they've read my post and can find themselves in the criteria Then they write to me and say, oh my gosh, I didn't recognize that this was a problem. It's just the way I've always been. So their hiding is unconscious. It's unintentional. That's how perfectly hidden depression, or at least that subtype of it, is different from high-functioning depression. You know, someone with classic depression may struggle to admit it, or may fear that they'll be stigmatized if they do. But they're more likely to be honest about what they're experiencing. They have to be because their symptoms are literally choking the life out of them. Someone with perfectly hidden depression, they may admit it, they may allow themselves to realize it, but only when life starts becoming more complicated, when a sense of panic about things getting out of control starts rising, then perhaps they will admit to their perfectionism and their problems with feeling pain. Again, if you're interested in the 10 traits of perfectly hidden depression, that's episode 21. My concern about all this is that sometimes someone with perfectly hidden depression will wait too long. As I would have said to Jordan, and I probably wrote it to him, that he has to be careful that that suicidal ideation doesn't form into a plan because the loneliness of perfectly hidden depression can become unbearable and no one needs to hide. Today, we've got an email from a listener, and she's writing about a little bit about perfectly hidden depression and about her history with sexual abuse and then abuse from a therapist. Here we go. I listened to what you said about perfectly hidden depression. I ticked off every characteristic. When I was 27, I became a Christian and began to find comfort from a life of trauma and loss. My mom had gotten a terminal illness and died three days before my high school graduation, My dad was a doctor and my mom a nurse, but they never told me she was terminal. People idolized my dad, but at home he was a rager, 
kind one minute, explosive and abusive the next. There were seven of us kids. My twin and I were adopted, and our oldest brother was adopted from another family. He's a sociopath and spent his life in prison. He molested all of us girls, but we were too afraid to tell. I searched for comfort in drugs, alcohol, and men. In college, I was suicidal. I was fined $50 for having something on the ledge. Me. That's a dramatic comment, isn't it? I transferred to a different university and started dating my now kind husband. I got married, had two kids, and settled down. But I could never eliminate the shame and depression. I just thought I had to live with it. Then one day, a dog attacked me. It was a horrible bite that looked like a bear mauled me on the back of my thigh. All my shame and pain came flooding out. I thought God had punished me. Over the years, I'd been to several therapists, and none of them ever went near my childhood stuff. After the dog bite, I went to see a counselor who specialized in phobias to help me with my fear of dogs. He had been cited for sexual abuse with clients, but I was so meek and helpless that I went to him anyway. He shamed me and mocked me for my belief in God. After about a year, I saw the light. I decided to go become a good counselor. Our program, and she says the school, was small, and I was very self-reflective. The director saw me coming from a hundred miles away. He had me come in and talk, and my story flooded out. He tried to make himself available for all the students to talk because he knew stuff would come up, and then he referred me to a counselor. I entered a massive time of grief, but then my depression and anxiety went away. It's virtually gone. I love helping people heal, and I can tell you do too. That's very nice. Thank you. <laughs> I do. I chose this email not only because, obviously, she had a lot of trauma in her life, but because I wanted to talk about therapist abuse. Here's my response. What a journey you've been on. It's fascinating, isn't it, how becoming a therapist yourself can lead you to realizations so much about your own past as well as the need to grieve and heal. Good for you for being open to do the work. I can't quite imagine counselors that would not go near childhood stuff. That blows my mind, actually. It may be that they themselves haven't walked that walk, so don't understand its necessity and gain although you may believe the pain will destroy you initially. I'm glad you found a way to heal your sexual abuse, your anger, and your depression. But let's talk a little about therapist abuse. Certainly a history of sexual abuse can make you less assertive, especially with the gender that abused you. For example, I had someone in therapy recently who told me a couple of sessions in that he found me a little bit intimidating. And we worked on that, but then he told me in the next session, actually, that there was a reason for that, that he had been sexually abused by his sister, and that he found women who were sure of themselves and more assertive to be intimidating. So there was a definite reason for that. Therapists should simply not cross certain boundaries. Obviously, to denigrate someone's faith is way out of line. People with all kinds of spiritual beliefs have come to me, and some with no spiritual beliefs, and my job as a therapist is to try to understand how their faith or lack of faith affects their mental functioning and their emotional functioning. That's it. Obviously, sexual and physical boundaries should be respected as well. If any therapist offers you a glass of wine or wants you to go into another room that's cozier or something like that, do not do that. And in fact, report that counselor. 
I do have a free ebook on my website, drmargaretrutherford.com, called Seven Commandments of Good Therapy. And within it, I list the things that you really want to look for in a therapist and the things that should alarm you that this is not the person you want to be vulnerable with. So all you have to do is subscribe to the website, and then you can read that book for free. Again, it's called Seven Commandments of Good Therapy. You can get in touch with me in a lot of ways, and I so appreciate the people that have left reviews again within the last week even. Yale grad and Lucille and Desi. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just light up when I see people saying what they're enjoying, what they're looking forward to in future podcasts. It really serves to motivate me, and I'd love to invite any of you to do the same. You can leave a rating or a review on anywhere you listen, but especially on iTunes. And you can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I'd love to hear from you. And so far, I've been able to get back with anybody who's written. I'd love to hear who you are. I have no way of knowing that. I just know where you're from. And letting me know the subject matter you're interested in is really helpful. In fact, the next two podcasts will be on topics that people have written in that they'd like for me to talk about. One is the causes of perfectly hidden depression. And another is self-esteem and self-acceptance. Obviously, both really great topics. So thanks for those. I'll see you next week. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work.